You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 14th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Has Qatar overdone it with the winning friends and influencing people in Brussels? Is China's abrupt abandonment of the hard line on COVID-19 likely to cause more problems than it solves? And steps are taken to deter the British from queuing. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Tessa Shishkovitz and Jonathan Fenby will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear from Andrew Small about his new book chronicling the evolution of the West's attitudes to China. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by the journalist and author Tessa Shishkovitz and by Jonathan Fenby, a consultant on China and former newspaper editor. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Good evening. Um, This is one of the last chances, in fact, the last chance we will get to do World Cup-related light introductory banter for at least another four years. Uh, The second semi-final is, of course, kicking off very shortly between France and Morocco. Uh, Tessa, first of all, despite the fact that you are here representing a nation which did not qualify, not that I do not rub it in. Again. Well, not only do I come from a country which did qualify, we basically have the same name as your country, but with an extra syllable. That is true. So you win on both. Counts. Well, exactly. Um, but have you been paying much attention to this? I did actually, and I like the fact that um, Morocco is now sort of so far advanced in this World Cup, and it's a nod to that the Middle East is in there too. So I think that's quite nice. And I'm always, as you know, as an Austrian for the underdogs, so I'm for <laughs> Morocco going further. Uh, and, and any number of retorts to that, which we will rise majestically <laughs> above. Um, uh, Jonathan, as a, a keen scholar of France and indeed the author of several excellent books on the subject, some of which I may be, st- I believe may still be available in time for purchase for Christmas. They are, absolutely. And they're on <laughs> sale in Qatar, it must be said. <laughs> French fans are lapping them up. Um, w- will you be paying av- attention to the semi-final later? Indeed, I have to hurry home after this broadcast in order to see France beat Morocco. So you're not buying into the underdog stuff? You want to see the the mighty French steamroller crush its opposition like bugs? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily use those adjectives, but (laughs) I'm I'm expecting France to win. (laughs) Uh, Well, we shall see how that goes, but we will pivot seamlessly. Can you pivot seamlessly? Actually, that uh, pivot... Yeah, Yeah, we do it all the time. Yeah, so I I, I just was wondering whether the whole... The construction literally held up there. But the World Cup-related light introductory banter, and thank you both for participating, does neatly tee up our opening item, i.e. the increasingly bemusing allegations that World Cup hosts Qatar have been bunging considerable wadges to at least one member of European Parliament in return for favourable treatment and or statements. Obligatory reminder before we pile into this that absolutely everybody denies absolutely everything. But in recent entrancing developments, Belgian police have recovered €600,000 in cash from the home of one suspect, 150 grand in the apartment of Greek MEP Ava Kaley, and 750 large in a suitcase from a Brussels hotel room. Um, Jonathan, first of all, I mean, are there leaping to your mind any 
innocent explanations for having 750 grand in cash in a suitcase in a Brussels hotel room. No. <laughs> if there are, tell me them. <laughs> if, if, if perhaps you were hoping to buy the hotel or something. Yes, I suppose you might be um, passing through on your way to giving the money to some equally upstanding citizen. Very possibly. And, um, and Tessa, speaking as a continental European, perhaps it is a, a nuance that we are missing out on. Are you, for example, personally in the habit of keeping 150 grand in cash about the place? Well, no, actually, I don't. <laughs> and I have actually used to stop to use any cash. So I think there's not a lot of ways how Eva Kaili will get out of this one. It's a wonderfully old-fashioned idea, isn't it? Walking around with all that money Waddles in a bag. cash, yeah. Cash. But it's like in like in a in a joke, yeah, yeah. That that the corruption is being shown by having all this money yeah. under your Rather mattress. Rather than just a bank transfer yeah. under another Silently, name, assumed name, yeah, and, yeah. and a few credit cards. I mean, I, I have in my time walked around with a bag full of cash, but it, it was in countries plagued by inflation, and the reason I had a bag full of cash was that's what it cost to buy a sandwich. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Same for me in Romania in '93 and these mm. places. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in Vietnam, I remember. Many many years ago, that you had to have so much cash with you that you more or less had to have a bag to carry it mm. uh, to buy anything in Hanoi. See, I'm not sure expensive those though Brussels is that any of yep. those defences are actually going to fly. So, nope. No. So, Jonathan, what is the European Parliament going to do to try and get out from under this? Are they, is the, is the a few bad apples defence going to work? No. I don't think so. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's, it's quite clear that the European Parliament, partly because it kind of set itself up as a moral arbiter for Europe, um, telling off uh, misbehaving foreign governments, etc., etc., um, from Russia, China, uh, on down, um, it, it, it has a difficulty here, which is, which this is bringing out, that it has a complete lack of internal controls. Um, I just saw today that it has a gift register on which MEPs are meant to register all gifts. And there have been precisely uh, eight MEPs out of 700 who've actually admitted to take it or signed the register of taking gifts but, over the last two years. But perhaps the other 692, Jonathan, legitimately have no friends have no gifts. And, and therefore have never received any presents, ever, from anybody. Yeah, but I liked it, the, the, the German Green MEP, who apparently is among the eight, and uh, she uh, registered the receipt of a perfume bottle. Not okay. perfume, but a perfume bottle from the Qataris. Can that yes. be worth anything? No, well, I mean, it, it, at le it is at least commendably honest. Um, yes. T Tessa, do we get the sense, and again, I repeat, everybody denies everything, that we are rather closer to the start of this story than the end of it, that we're going to find out more, and none of it is going to reflect well on people involved? Well, I mean, it's a serious uh, case, of course, but it's also not so surprising because what we see and what will, I think, be the consequence of this is that uh, the European Parliament in particular needs better rules yeah. to to fight corruption. So one of the things that uh, concerns all of these institutions is that uh, you have lobbying rules, but you have not state lobbying rules and that is something that needs to change so that mm. it should be clearly regulated how uh, a government can try to influence uh, 
policy being uh, uh, developed in the European Parliament or in the Commission. And the Commission has an ethics body, which is more transparent than the, the EU Parliament's body. But all these things need to be now thought through. And also, you know, over-regulating things is also not a good idea. But there needs to be an enforcement of the rules that already exist. And then you need to strengthen them, especially in the EU Parliament, uh, for state interference. That's something which has been not done enough till now. And it goes beyond you know, the, the alleged uh, large amounts of money in suitcases and so on, mm. which is, in a sense, the obvious thing. I think you're right, Andrew, this is only the beginning of it, because then that leads on all the way to the question of the revolving door and where do people who have been in a position to make decisions or influence decisions, then after they stop being members of the European Parliament, where do they go to? Do they happen to um, land up on a well-paid job on the board of a friendly country. I mean, that may be a partial answer, Jonathan, to the the final question I wanted to ask about this subject, because the, the, the thing I keep coming back to here, and it's the thing that baffles me about this, that if I was, well, I'm just trying to quickly tot up these amounts, uh, 750, 150, about yeah. one and a half million euros. Yeah. So let's say I was in receipt of one and a half million euros and had some sort of desire to launder my reputation. I don't think I would bung it to members of European Parliament. I mean, nobody knows who they are. No, unless uh, it's, yeah, unless it's a government, and this will be an interesting thing, which makes a lot of a speech which by an MEP, which nobody else has taken any notice of. You know, it might be on the front page of the Qatari Daily News, for example. Well, we will be following this story as it unfolds, uh, as I very strongly suspect it's going to. But now we will look at China, where authorities appear to be nearing the completion of a tyre-smoking, screeching and indeed shredding 180-degree turn as regards official attitudes to preventing the spread of COVID-19. After nearly three years of some of the world's most rigorous restrictions, the new line appears to be WEVs. Health authorities have admitted that tracking the virus has become impossible, especially as the first removals of restrictions restrictions have created the biggest surge in infections China has yet endured. Um, Jonathan, as well as several excellent books about France, you have written, of course, several excellent books about China and related matters. Um, How weird and possibly critical a moment for the Chinese Communist Party is this? Because they do rather look like they've been bounced into this by protests. And if, as a consequence of that, the whole thing completely unravels, this may cause them um, a fair whack of trouble. Yes, I think this is a a very crucial moment, actually, in China. Um, Not simply because of COVID and the effect of the 180-degree turn away from a policy that Xi Jinping had laid down as being absolutely the doctrine everybody must follow, and if you didn't, you were disloyal Mm. to him, to the Communist Party, to the great nation, and and so on and so on. Uh, But it also comes at a point where China is facing a lot of other economic problems arising, I won't go into them all here, but from debt, local government, finance, a huge property crisis, plus a tougher, harsher line from Washington, from the Biden administration, particularly on technology. Uh, And there's an awful lot that's uh, on Xi Jinping's in-tray at the moment. Tessa, could this end up having global repercussions, as in if an enormous surge of infections in China sparks enormous surges of infections elsewhere? 
I think it will be more interesting for to watch China itself than the repercussions mm. for us because we seem to have sort of more or less got control over the virus mm. because we are vaccinated. Mm. And the problem in China is that so far, yeah. as far as I know, there are like only 40% over 80-year-olds that have three uh, vaccinations. And yeah. so they are really not... Um, protected enough so there might be a lot of deaths coming uh, there and that will only prove more or less the point that uh, it was a good idea to um, invest quickly in very good vaccines mm. and get the population vaccinated so i don't think it will be so much for us but it's quite an interesting uh, study case study also to see how quickly this authoritarian regime reacted to the protests mm. of the people mm. on the street and also to the fact that it's really harmful for the econ I economy i think it was more the economy than the people in the street but it's really a very very quick turnaround and, mm. and that is something maybe to watch also for the time mm. to come and there are apparently, according to reports from China, there are a lot of vaccines which would in store, which would have been effective against the original Wuhan mm. uh, strain, but now are not much good mm. against much more infect infectious schemes. Um, and interestingly, uh, reports from Beijing, in particular today, uh, imply that people are people have been really scared and are really scared of catching it. So you've in, in effect got almost a lockdown being done by individuals you know streets are empty restaurants are empty the usual delivery people uh, are not uh, working etc etc it's almost as if <laughs> there is a lockdown through fear uh, by individuals rather than being imposed by the authorities but Jonathan I just wanted to pick up on that point Tessa was making about how uh, quickly and easily, it seems the the Communist Party buckled in the face mm -hmm. of protests again and I'm not consumed with sympathy for their predicament in this respect, but might they have stored up more trouble for themselves there if Chinese people who are dissatisfied with other things think, yep. well, hang on, a week of street protests and this mighty leviathan absolutely caved. If they will buckle on that, what else will they buckle on? Yes, that, that is always the, the, the fear of an authoritarian regime, mm. that if it gives way an inch, it'll be pushed back uh, a foot or a mile, whatever it is. And I think that probably the motivation, uh, I'm not there, one can't be in Beijing at the moment, um, but the motivation behind a lot of the protests was fueled by the kind of economic uh, elements that I was talking about earlier, right, very high youth unemployment, for instance, mm. the property uh, crash, which means that middle-class families were which owned three, four, five apartments and have seen them going up in value steadily all the time, now suddenly are seeing them plunging uh, in value. You can't go on holidays abroad. You can't travel. You can't do all the things which middle-class Chinese used to do and say, that's thanks to the Communist Party. So, indeed, there may be some questioning. And I think Xi Jinping and his colleagues probably were preparing for this for some time they realized they were going to have to uh, give way because of the effects on the economy. But uh, the fact that it came after the protests, of course, makes them look in some senses rather weak.
Well, we will stay in China now. The West's relationship with China under President Xi Jinping has shifted somewhat from cooperation to rivalry in recent years. That change has been quicker in some Western capitals than in others. Andrew Small is a senior transatlantic fellow with the Asia Programme at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. His new book is No Limits, the inside story of China's war with the West, and it looks at the internal debates in Brussels, Berlin, Beijing and Washington that led us to this moment. Andrew spoke to Monocle's Chris Chermak on a recent visit to the US Capitol. They began by discussing the impact that former US President Donald Trump had in shifting European attitudes towards China. I think he was a catalyst. I, I think even when you talk to some of the French officials who were kind of most hostile even to cooperation with the US on a whole series of areas, they too recognized. I mean, there'd been all of these cumulative developments on the Chinese side, but you needed to have some kind of a shock to make everyone in Europe step back, really revisit policy on the basis of the fundamentals. And he opened up that space. I think the 5G battles played their role in waking up a number of governments. You hadn't had uh, heads of government cabinet level exchanges on on China and and there was a real shaking up process that played out through that period but I think it was as much just the idea that you have to rethink China policy from the ground up and that there is more that is possible and there is a kind of wider spectrum of options for what China policy can look like than people had become used to so I think it had a huge kind of shaking up effect on on how Europe thought about China even if there were certainly lots of areas in which there's been this real resistance particularly during that period but still during the Biden administration to being seen to be too aligned with the United States and was this kind of high levels of discomfort almost revolt about doing that when in fact on lots of these areas you, you nonetheless had a very high level of convergence in, in thinking on the two sides. And to what extent then has, is there still divergence would you say at this point? How much are the US and Europe aligned when it comes to their China policies? Well, you have a high level of convergence when it comes to, I'd say, the analysis. What is the phenomenon that we're seeing on the Chinese side? What are the issues at stake? What has been the shift under Xi Jinping's leadership in particular? And to a certain extent, how far are we talking about something that is not just that you're dealing with containing some specific trade disputes and raising some human rights issues and something that is systemic, something that poses a set of risks to Western economies, to Western security in in a way that people hadn't envisaged before. So I think you've got kind of convergence on the the nature of the risks. It's why I think it's actually not so difficult to get shared language on on China in these summit communicates and things at the G7 and, and, and NATO. The harder bit is essentially There's a lot of China policy that's not about how you're approaching Taiwan or how you're approaching Xinjiang. It's more how can Europe and the US pull together in a series of different areas? How far are they able to have convergent approaches, not just on China, but how other parts of policy need to to be more closely aligned in light of the specific challenge that China poses? How much should China change approaches to the openness of our systems, trade policy, privacy policy, a whole series of other areas that have, I think, proved more elusive and where some of the gaps on the transatlantic front, which are still the traditional ones, have not necessarily been closed yet by the sense of the imminence and scale of the China challenge. 
to bring it forward to this year. What is your impression of how China has handled the invasion of Ukraine by Russia? And who has that had a bigger impact on, Europe or the U.S., in terms of re-evaluating its relationship also with China? I think it's had a much bigger effect in, in Europe. But there's still a debate underway, as we saw at the G20, when it comes to kind of what the China-Russia relationship actually looks like. I think there's still a lot of misplaced hope from certain corners in, in Europe that there may be some capacity for China to be differentiated from Russia and, and maybe play a constructive role, which I think is very far off the mark. But I think it was a real shock in the early months of the year to see China pretty much backing politically all of the Russian positions coming out as they did seeing Putin at this critical moment in the lead up to the war with this no limits partnership that the two sides announced at a juncture in which the Russians moved their troops from the Chinese borders and Mongolian borders to the lowest level since the 1920s and to Europe. So I mean there was real kind of material effect in terms of how far this felt like it was an enabling factor for the war. So I think we're now at this slightly different juncture where in the early months China was not really sure how to play the Russia relationship to its advantage. It got locked into some quite rigid positions of political support. It was unhappy at the level of opprobrium it was facing as a result of that, particularly in, in Europe. But it wasn't really willing to pull away in any sense from the position which I think for Xi Jinping has been so important. Russia is a critical partner in an environment in which he sees and China sees this kind of struggle period with the United States and with the West more generally playing out. But more recently, what we've seen is that China is also aware of some areas where minor points of diplomatic differentiation can be leveraged to its advantage. And we've seen that on the nuclear question and the statements from China on uh, nuclear weapons use and threats. And to a certain extent, we even saw this with the, the joint statement at the G20. I think China now sees that there are various states in, in Europe in particular who, out of some level of hope, are then willing to approach their relationship with China by saying, well, we need to engage them on Russia. They have influence there. The depth of this relationship means that they can nudge Russia in helpful directions. And I think they've started to see how to play that to their advantage in a way that they, they had not at an earlier juncture in the year. Where does this go from here? Are, are we at a stage where antagonism is the only, the only world we can live in, or is there a version of this where there is still cooperation between the two? I think we're just defining the scope of cooperation down. I think it's it's cooperation without any illusions. Uh, there are going to be these kind of stripped down areas in which the two sides can see points where they can they can work together. I think you can go through a relatively short list of those things, but there's going to be those areas in security, on global economic issues, but, but almost all of them are going to be characterized by elements of competition as well. Climate is always the classic example used, where in fact you have huge levels of competition between Chinese green tech industry and, and Europe. And, and the US on, on these things. This is not just going to be an area of cooperation. All of these areas are going to be conditioned by elements of rivalry and competition. We've seen that with global health through the pandemic. Um, I don't think there's going to be any kind of clean or very few areas of clean cooperation. I think for the most part, we're in, going to be embarked in something that looks much more like a kind of systemic struggle. That's certainly how China envisages it. And there's going to be a question of how that's managed. And there's then going to be a lot of other countries that are not members of either of these nascent blocks and, and how that competition gets navigated there as well and what the respective offers are, what non-alignment looks like in, in this context of, of block politics. So there's a lot that's still in, in play on what the shape of these relations look like, but I don't think we're going back to an area of meaningful cooperation between the two sides anymore. 
That was Andrew Small speaking to our Washington correspondent, Chris Chermak. Andrew's new book is No Limits, the inside story of China's war with the West. Uh, Tessa, first of all, do, do you get the sense that European capitals in particular have been travelling at different speeds um, vis-à-vis figuring out whether or not China is necessarily an adversary? Well, first of all, I think um, the last years have shown even to the European capitals, that China is not only interested in, you know, economic cooperation, but also will come with a certain interest uh, of controlling things if you sell them, for example, ports in Europe. And you have seen in Germany, for example, that although the awareness uh, is a bit higher that China might become a rather aggressive um, world superpower, also in its foreign politics, it's still happening. So there was this big debate at the end of uh, October in Hamburg, and there was a compromise that was reached at the end because this some of the ports uh, of um, port uh, terminals in of the port in Hamburg were supposed to be sold to Costco, to the Chinese shipping holdings, and they reached a compromise that they only could buy 24.9%, mm-hmm. so just short of a, of a, of a, a blocking minority. And that shows you that there is a debate about infl- Chinese influence and that you have to be careful, but it also shows that there's a very strong interest still to do business with China. I mean, following that up, though, Jonathan, do you think that what we have learnt about I guess attempting to uh, weave our weave a friendly relationship out of shared economic interests with a superpower which may not share our values. We, Europe has learnt quite a lot about that the hard way uh, this year. Will there be any sense in the kind of places that Andrew Small was discussing that are we just making the same mistake with China, but potentially even more appallingly? Yes, uh, <clears throat> basically the the, the investment. Uh, in Europe, particularly in the economic relationship with mm. China, particularly Germany, but also France and other countries too, uh, is enormous and is, although economic, it's politically important there. And you get um, the other layer to this, which Andrew Small uh, referred to, which is as the United States seems to have bipartisan support for a, quote, tough, unquote, line with China, whatever that means. This involves building up domestic manufacturing capacity in the United States uh, in areas where there is thought to be too much dependence on China uh, Mm. at the moment. But that will also affect Europe. Uh, And this brings in the spectre of a kind of new protectionism uh, starting, which the EU will react very badly to, and I don't think is very well um, set up to, uh, to cope with. Well, let's move along and look at the United States. And in 1996, US Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act, a miserable piece of legislation which effectively banned federal recognition of same-sex marriage, defining marriage strictly as a union of one man and one woman. The Defense of Marriage Act passed the Senate 85 votes to 14. Among those helping it on its way was Delaware Senator Joe Biden. Yesterday, President Joe Biden signed the Respect for Marriage Act, which protects both same-sex and interracial marriages. Here is some of what President Biden had to say. Marriage, I mean this involved my heart, marriage is a simple proposition. Who do you love? And will you be loyal to that person you love? 
It's not more complicated than that. And the law recognizes that everyone should have the right to answer those questions for themselves without the government interference. It also secures the federal rights, protections that come with marriage. Like when your loved one gets sick and you've legally recognized as a next of kin. For most of our nation's history, we denied interracial couples and same-sex couples from these protections. We failed. We failed to treat them with equal dignity and respect. Joe Biden speaking earlier as he signed the Respect for Marriage Act. Um, Tessa, first of all, that's, it's fair to say that President Biden has been on a journey where this is concerned, and perfectly fair enough. I mean, people are entitled to change their mind. Um, but do we, should we look at his journey as something of a microcosm for the one the Western world has been on? Because 1996, which is not so very long ago, that was pretty mainstream, uncontroversial opinion that same-sex marriage wasn't really a thing that should be allowed to happen. And, and now, you know, not all that much longer... It does seem now to become, well, according to opinion polls uh, throughout the Western world, pretty much the mainstream view that it's fine, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, and I think we should applaud uh, Joe Biden also that he has come uh, a long way on this, uh, even if, in my opinion, it could have happened much earlier, obviously. But at least he did it now uh, while he's struggling to get a few sensible uh, laws through the Congress and the, and the Senate before the Republicans will become stronger from January on. But I think it also shows you something now uh, that because there's a backlash against liberal views in America and since uh, Roe versus Wade was uh, mm-hmm. overruled in, in August, I think it is really now the moment when you also have this forward push against this backlash. Mm. And that's what happens. Yep. And that's for Biden, his opinion has changed. But I think he feels also he needs to pick up this wave of uncomfortable yep. feeling among uh, the population that we have to fight for our liberal rights that we have uh, achieved over the last 50 years. And that concerns, of course, also rights of the LGBTQ community. And, um, and that's why this is happening now, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's worth recalling as well that I think Biden got there quite a way before his former boss, President Barack Obama, publicly at least, was opposing same-sex marriage as late as his first presidential run uh, in 2008. But again, Jonathan, I just want to talk a bit about how fast that has happened and why this has happened so fast. Netherlands became the first country to legalise same-sex marriage in 2001, which is really not that long ago. Uh, still only at 32 countries, but that's 32 countries more than there were were at the beginning of this century. Is is there a similar path being followed here um, as the path to acceptance of interracial marriages? In the, in the United States, in 1958, 4% of people mm. approved mm. of interna- interracial relationships. 2021, that's up at 94%, and I don't think anyone really takes the other 6% yeah. terribly seriously. No, I think that the whole public feeling, the zeitgeist, as one might say, has, cha- has shifted mm. very considerably. And as you were just saying, uh, the important thing is that Biden, using the power of the presidency, puts himself behind that Mm. and that you don't get a 
uh, an edging back uh, towards a more reactionary, unprogressive uh, attitude, I think. But, but to what do we attribute the, the, the increasing acceptance of it, uh, Tessa? Is it a function of just, just visibility as more and more people uh, find themselves confident enough to say this is who I am and then for, I guess more and more people find themselves working with somebody or being friends with somebody or being related to somebody and you start to realise... Yeah, there's just not a thing here. Yeah, and it's also, you know, look at Ireland, you know, which mm. has passed it recently, uh, the same, uh, same-sex same marriage law. Um, and I think it's really uh, shows that for 50 years, the societies in, where we live here in the West have been liberalizing and we got used to the fact that women can love women and men can love men. And we are now at this point where sort of the transgender issue is a bit more in debate. But it's the same thing. It will also become more uh, normal for people to see that not everyone will stay in the gender that has been uh, this biological sex they've been assigned to and all these kind of things. And I, I think people should just go with the flow because but, that's what's happening. I think you're, you're right, Andrew, that this strikes me as a somebody who comes from several generations ago <laughs> um, that you know, it is entirely normal when somebody now talks, a man now talks about his wife and means another man. Mm. And one is not surprised. Or at indeed, that. when a man talks about his husband. Yeah, exactly. Mm. You know, <laughs> his husband. Yes. Um, but I was just thinking of specific examples there in my life. And, but it is entirely normal mm. now. Um, there is nothing strange about this. But, but and it, society has evolved, and but, we have to accept that society not, not does a, evolve. Not the whole of society. And this no, is no, why no. Biden invited this to is the why it's signing important. yesterday. Mm, exactly. He invited the people who were at this Colorado Springs Club. Uh, the LGBTQ club where this shooting happened recently yeah. and to show also that this US administration is standing behind yeah. all all parts of the society if they are now straight or not straight or if they're get la- um, that I think is ex- that and is extremely important. important that is yeah. important at a point where you're getting a politicization of if you like the reaction against progress mm. exactly well on the sub is this a reaction against progress I thought there was a link there I don't think there's a link I think I think everyone at home is just going to have to imagine a screeching grinding of gears as we go into our next item uh, <laughs> Uh, British people are always keen to advertise their capacity, if not indeed their outright fondness for queuing. Indeed, they'd probably stand in a queue to tell you how good they are at it. However, this national pastime has been confronted by London Record Emporium Banquet, finding itself besieged by people queuing overnight for tickets for shows at nearby venue Prism by bafflingly popular singer Louis Tomlinson. Banquet is moving to ensure that those who pitch up furthest in advance of opening hours will be served last now jonathan speaking here (laughs) representing the british people as you are (laughs) yes um the official line on this from banquet is that they are doing this because they don't want people camping outside overnight when it's quite cold they don't want them to freeze yeah is that fair enough or is this just a a, a sacrilege against a a time-honored british tradition well, it's it's it, it's both. Um, <laughs> you could say if they are frozen, they may not be able to reach into 
their pocket for the money or the credit card mm. or whatever they're paying by. Um, and they may not be able to go in. They may be too sick for that. On the other hand, the tradition... I, I just wonder how real the tradition is uh, in Britain. Like, like, I mean, because obviously one of the defining visual motifs of this year was that extraordinary and in its weird uh, way yeah, quite moving cue to see Queen Elizabeth II lying in state. What would they have done if that had happened at this time of year? Well, that that is a, a, a very good question. I mean, coming here, coming here on the, the studio on the bus this evening, all I can say is around the bus stop, there was a mob of people. There was no kind of orderly queue, as one would like to think British tradition would have dictated. It, it, it and has, guess it, who pushed his way to the front? Jay Fenby. <laughs> uh, it, it has been my general observation, Tessa, that the British have got notably less orderly, in fact, in the time yep. that I have lived here. They, don't, they do not queue in the same way they once did. But I was, I was wondering if you, as an Austrian, a famously orderly people, um, resented somewhat this idea that the British say, we're great at queuing, we're the best at queues, we stand in queues, no one else queues like us. I actually like this queuing thing. I think it's quite <laughs> nice to be surrounded by usually polite people who are willing to stand in line and don't push around. I've been living in countries where that was absolutely not yes. the case and Austria is one of them. So I think I like that. It's I, I, I think the, this whole idea to, to give a penalty to people queuing up during the night for a concert is a little bit silly. They should have done what uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge did when people were lining up for getting tickets to flee back to the show uh, three years ago. She came out and handed out gin and tonics. <laughs> I think that's a very nice thing to do. Yes. Together no, with the sexy priest, if I may imagine. Yes. It's no doubt that all these wonderful old traditions we believe in are going down the plug hole. Mm. I mean, who takes cold baths anymore? <laughs> uh, we know the answer to that, Jonathan, because we were discussing this in the waiting room beforehand, and, and we know that there is at least one person in this studio still cleaving... Uh, cold shower. The yes. baffling British tradition of the cold shower. Um, I did want to conclude this item, though, by asking you both. We've already learnt, Jonathan, that you will not queue for a bus. Um, but are there any things, uh, or has there been anything, that either of you would willingly queue a very long time for? So I'm not at all a queuer. I don't. If there's a queue for a restaurant, I'm not standing in that. I'm not queuing up to spend my own money. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to stand into a queue to get into a venue. I, the whole, if they can be avoided at all, I will avoid them. I have queued to get into restaurants. I must say, uh, my wife, who happens to be French, this mm. has nothing to do with it, is very good at moving us to the front of the queue. How, how does she do that? Does, they, do, does she say, this is Jonathan Fenby, author of several no, no, well-received well books on China no, and no, no. France? She, she puts on, uh, usually she puts on a French accent and people, <laughs> people wave her forward. Um, and, and Tessa, is there, is there anything that you have in recent times willingly queued for? Well, I'm a little bit like you, so I hate queuing, mm. and especially because I've spent so much time in my life to queue for passport controls in mm -hmm. countries that don't, yeah. have the, don't belong to the Schengen area. So I'm really not willing to, to queue for silly things like restaurants or that. But I, I have been queuing for F uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's um, show at the time. I went very early in the morning to get a free standing ticket for her show, Fleabag, uh, because I couldn't Did you get, get a gin anyone. and tonic as well? Yeah, well, that, that happened, no, unfortunately, that in the evening. In the morning, I had to get... My boyfriend brought me a coffee because he was queuing with me. So yeah. And we did get tickets, and that was worth doing it because I couldn't get tickets anymore. I couldn't buy them anymore. They were sold out. H and I really how, wanted to see how them. Long, how long a queue was that? It was like 
like three hours we came. We were sitting on the floor in the morning. The sun was rising. Everyone was chatting. It was a very nice experience, I have nice. to say. Well, there's a restaurant, mm-hmm. which I won't name, not far from this studio, in fact, where you can't reserve, and it's very popular, and you have to queue, and... We do, as a family, queue uh, quite often for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, whatever it is. And the most enthusiastic queuers are my granddaughters aged in their teens. So there are, you know, there are... See, I I, I genuinely think that's just rude on the part of the restaurant, not to allow people to book a table (laughs) and turn up and eat when it suits them. The, the, The restaurant exists for the customer's convenience, not the other way around. Yes, yes. That's 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 absolutely my final word on. Of the course, matter. there is also the, the the question of making friends in queues. Yes. Have you exactly. ever what actually is, had a spontaneous it, interaction with it, a member of is, the general public? Are yes. you are you mad? Who who likes the same things that you I like? I love these things. <laughs> you really meet the nicest people, especially exactly like-minded queues. ones. If you queue because you queue for the same thing. Exactly. Do not that's, underestimate that's this yes. effect. Yes. Well, on that debatably heartwarming note, <laughs> Tessa Shishkovitz and Jonathan Fenby, thank you both very much for joining us. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening. <laughs>